Welcome to the Join My League Football Podcast with your host, Tim Kaleka. Welcome back to the Join My League Football Podcast. I know it's been a minute. I know it's been a while since I put out an episode. Lots of happenings around the National Football League this time of year, as is this way every March with free agency just beginning and, of course, the legal tampering stage, which has got to be up there with the most worthless time periods in all of pro sports. Have you ever heard of legal tampering? Because if it's legal, it's not tampering. If it's tampering, it's not legal. Stupid. Real stupid. Anyways, with all the trades and signings that were announced over the last week or so, None of them became official until this past Wednesday, which we'll get into all of that a little bit later. But first, on the last episode, I promised a countdown, and I came today with a countdown. This took a lot longer to come up with than I originally anticipated, in part because I've I've only been alive for 33 of the 53 Super Bowls, and I could only really remember vividly the one since 1997. And by vividly, I mean there's a lot of stuff where you forget what happened. You remember the winner. You probably remember the loser. You remember the key plays or how the games ended. And you might remember the halftime show. So I had to go back, watch what was available, the games themselves, America's Team documentaries, in-depth research, almost 53 Super Bowls. Spent about three hours a game. If you do the math, that's 159 hours of football. So with that said, I'd appreciate it if you held your garbage opinions to yourselves and let me present to you JML's top 10 worst Super Bowls of all time. And coming in at number 10, Super Bowl 37, Tampa Bay Buccaneers defeated the Oakland Raiders 48-21 on January 6th, uh, 26th, sorry, January 26th, 2003. The game was never really close. And the only bright spot of this game was watching Tampa Bay's defense completely shut down the high-octane Raiders offense. That was it. You had the, the number one offense in the league at the time versus the number one defense in the league at the time. You'd think that would make for an instant classic, but the only thing classic about this game was Tampa's defense solidifying themselves as an all-time great while forcing five Rich Gannon interceptions. And it's because of this game that people tend to forget how amazing the Raiders' offense that year actually was. Number 9, Super Bowl twelve, The Dallas Cowboys defeating the Denver Broncos on January 15, 1978 at the Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans. When the two quarterbacks of a team go a combined 8 for 25 for 61 yards and 4 interceptions, as the Broncos tandem did that day, and a running game that barely averaged four yards per carry, you probably think shutout. I know I would. But the Broncos weren't shutout because somehow they managed to put up 10 points. But Dallas scored 17 more than that and rolled to a 27-10 blowout in one hell of a snoozer. Coming in at number 8, I got Super Bowl 33 from the 1998 season. Took place in Miami, January 31st, 1999. Broncos 34, Falcons 19. Not only was this an awful, terrible game, it was 31-6 Broncos in the fourth before a late rally by Atlanta, but more importantly, the Falcons robbed us of probably the greatest Super Bowl never played. The Falcons defeated the 15-1 Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship game by some total fluke, never-in-a-million-years type BS 
With that, you knew the Super Bowl that year was not going to live up to the hype, but I think the Falcons could have done a little bit better of a job trying. Potentially, that Super Bowl should have been John Elway, Rod Smith, Shannon Sharp, and Terrell Davis versus Randall Cunningham, Chris Carter, a rookie Randy Moss, and Robert Smith. I'll never forgive Gary Anderson or the Vikings kicker curse for this one, or the Falcons. The Falcons should be ashamed of themselves. Number seven, and this one, it shouldn't even be this high on the list. The Denver Broncos got killed by the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl uh, 24, 55 to 10. That was the score, 55 to 10. The 49ers opened up to a 27 to 3 halftime lead. When a Super Bowl is over by halftime, you know it's one of the worst ever. And the Broncos actually had the best defense in football that year, and they gave up 55 points in the Super Bowl. You know, we're four games through this list, and the Broncos have appeared three times already. And a little spoiler for you, this isn't the last of it. You'll be hearing more about the Denver Broncos in a little while. Number six, worst Super Bowl ever, January 22nd, 1984, Super Bowl 18. The Oakland Raiders defeated the uh, Washington Redskins 38-9. The Redskins actually finished with a better record than the Raiders that year, but decided not to show up in the Super Bowl. Two defensive special teams touchdowns by Oakland had this one a little bit out of control by halftime as the Raiders were up 21-3. Now, the Redskins, they did show some signs of life in the third with an early touchdown. That cut the Raiders' lead to 21-9. But nine is all they could muster as the Raiders scored 17 additional unanswered points to end the game. Yawn. Down to the top five and coming in at number five, Steelers versus Seahawks, Super Bowl 40, also known as Super Bowl Extra Large, or XL, or as I like to call it, Super Bowl extra large piece of trash. Absolute, 100% grade A trash. Took place in 2006 in Detroit, Michigan, which was Steelers Hall of Fame running back Jerome Bettis' hometown. You knew some BS was coming. I really think this one deserves to be a little bit lower on the list, maybe at 9 or 10, because the game wasn't all that bad. But this game had me irritated that whenever I think of the game itself, I still get irritated. For one, the lead up, in my personal opinion, the lead up to the game was very blah. I had no personal interest in the Steelers or Seahawks at the time. I thought there were uh, there were multiple teams that were better than both of these that would have made for much better Super Bowls. And I felt like the Steelers were the better team between the two all around and they were they were destined to win the game. Out of all the Super Bowls that I've watched since I've been a football fanatic, this one excited me the least. And the game proved that, with blown calls all over the place that still have Seahawks fans calling for conspiracy to this day. And that's why this is so high on the list. Steelers won that garbage of a game 21-10. Number four, Super Bowl 41, the year after, in 2007, uh, the Indianapolis Colts versus the Chicago Bears. Outside of a Devin Hester returning the opening kickoff 92 yards for a touchdown, the only other play that I can recall is the scoring play uh, after Hester's return, which resulted in Peyton Manning tossing a 53-yard bomb uh, for a touchdown to Reggie Wayne. And that was because of severely blown coverage by the best defense in the league. The Bears kept it close, and they trailed 16-14 going into the half, but in the second half, the rain started to fall, and it was all Indianapolis from there. 
Couple that with the fact that the quarterback who started this game, well, Rex Grossman actually played and started in a Super Bowl. That's all I had to say. And now you know why this game is in the top five worst Super Bowls of all time. Number three, Super Bowl six. Cowboys trampling the Miami Dolphins 24-3 on January 16, 1972. There was a total of 205 passing yards between the two teams. All the while, Dallas forced three Dolphins turnovers and ran the ball 48 times for 252 yards. That's about five and a half yards a carry. This was just a game of constant runs. And I'm not even talking about broken tackles, long runs for touchdowns. I'm talking just runs up the gut for five, six, seven yards, getting Dallas into enemy territory and passing the ball into the end zone from 10 yards out. Total lackluster garbage Super Bowl that was amongst the worst of all time. Fun fact, this was actually one year prior to the Dolphins going undefeated and winning the Super Bowl in 1972. But don't forget, the year before they went undefeated, they got dominated in Super Bowl VI. It's really a coin toss for number two, but I'm going to turn the clock back less than five years to Super Bowl XLVIII. Once again, the Denver Broncos, this time led by one of the greatest of all time, Peyton Manning. They were a two-point favorite heading into this game versus the Seattle Seahawks and their league-leading defense. 43-8 was the final in favor of Seattle. 43-8. 43-8. How do you... Peyton Manning led offense puts up eight points in the Super Bowl. It's garbage. Once again, the only play that I can vividly remember is the first play of the game that resulted in a, a safety for the Seattle Seahawks. By halftime, the Seahawks were up 22 to nothing, and it was about that time where I decided it's best to forget the Super Bowl altogether. I hit the bottle pretty hard. And you know something? If there's two things that can be taken away from this list, it's this. This year's Super Bowl 53 between the Rams and Patriots wasn't as bad as everyone made it out to be. And maybe more importantly, the next time the Denver Broncos make an appearance in the Super Bowl, it's best to keep your expectations low for what kind of game that's actually going to turn out to be. And number one, the absolute worst Super Bowl of all time, Super Bowl 35, Giants-Ravens. And the Ravens won that game 34-7, and the only points the Giants were able to put up was a second-half kickoff return for a touchdown. In fact, that was part of the only memorable thing to come out of that game. Three straight scores in just 35 seconds. You had a Dwayne Starks interception return for a touchdown, put up the Ravens 17-0 in the third, followed by a Ron Dixon kickoff return for a touchdown that made it 17-7, and on the ensuing kickoff, Jermaine Lewis brought the ball back 84, uh, 84 yards for a score. That's it. 35 seconds out of a, out of a four-quarter game. That, that was your best part of that game. 35 seconds. That's it. Look, I don't need to break down why this game was so terrible. All you got to do is look at the quarterback matchup heading into Super Bowl 35 that featured Trent Dilfer versus Kerry Collins. And you know why Super Bowl 35 is number one on JML's list of the top 10 worst Super Bowls of all time. The second date circled on the NFL offseason's calendar has come and gone, and I'm talking NFL free agency. And I have to tell you, this was one of the coolest, most fascinating free agency periods that I've ever been a part of. I actually think they get better, more interesting, and just more exciting. Fireworks everywhere. Every single year, it just increases. From Antonio Brown heading to the Raiders to Le'Veon Bell signing with the Jets, the Odell Beckham Jr. trade to Cleveland. And those are just the biggest names. 
Eric Weddle to the Rams, C.J. Mosley to the Jets, Anthony Barr from Minnesota to the Jets and back to the Vikings. Trey Flowers to the Lions, Nick Foles to Jacksonville, uh, Landon Collins to Washington, and so many more. It's been insane, and I'd be here talking with a blown-out voice until tomorrow morning if I were to break down all the signings that's happened over the last week or so. It's impossible. But in my opinion, there are four teams who won free agency. However, just because you win free agency in March doesn't mean you win in the fall and winter. How many times have we seen a team or teams make big splashes in free agency and increase their expectations only to fail to meet those expectations the following year? Many times, right? But I'm going to discuss the four March winners with you right now. The Raiders, Jets, Browns, and Jaguars who all finished towards the bottom of the league in standings last year. With the exception of Cleveland, who finished right around the middle of the pack at 7-9, and nine, these are the same four teams you've been hearing about for the last week and a half with all the splashes they made recently. And I'm going to start with the Raiders. Look, anytime you deal the best defensive player in the league just before a regular season kicks off, along with the top five wide receiver prior to that season's trade deadline, you are going to get criticized immediately, regardless of what you get in return. We know the Raiders received the 2019 and 2020 first round draft picks from the Bears for Khalil Mack, but what the Raiders use those draft picks for are actually what the Raiders will be getting for Khalil Mack, and we don't know what that's going to be for another couple years, if that makes any sense. On the flip side, they dealt Amari Cooper to Dallas for a first round draft pick, and we won't know what the Raiders are going to be getting for that for another month and a half. But what I do know is Amari Cooper has been replaced by Antonio Brown for a third and a fifth round draft pick. So the Raiders shipped Amari Cooper for a first rounder and replaced him with a more productive receiver for a third and fifth rounder. Are you paying attention? Because basically, the Raiders traded Amari Cooper, a third round draft pick, and a fifth round draft pick for Antonio Brown and a first round draft pick. That, that, that's robbery. Say what you will about John Gruden, but he's starting to look like a little bit of a genius right now. Yeah, he signed a 10-year contract with the Raiders last year, but so what? He can't get fired after three seasons? Sure he can. All he did was buy himself time with these trades. He wasn't winning with Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper anyway. With Mack, the Raiders were still 23rd in defense in 2017. And it's not like John Gruden is known for his defense. He's a quarterback guy. He's an offensive guy. And Cooper needed a change of scenery. He bought, and by he, I mean John Gruden, he brought himself four more years by trading those guys. Can't expect the Raiders to be super competitive in the AFC West this season. And it all depends on who and how they use those five first-round draft picks over the next two years. But the Raiders are absolutely one of the winners in free agency, and the sky is the limit for Oakland right now. How about Jacksonville? Talk on them has quieted down some since they agreed to sign Nick Foles a couple weeks ago, but that is huge. And although I don't have the highest regard for Nick Foles or the contract the Jaguars signed him to, I think he's very average for a guy who's getting a four-year, $88 million deal, but he's certainly better than last year's starting quarterback, Blake Bortles. The concern with Nick Foles is how he'll manage to play outside of Philadelphia, Nick Foles played for Philadelphia from uh, 2012 to 2014. He put up a total of 6,753 yards, 53 touchdowns compared to 17 interceptions. Then in 2015, he played for the Rams, totaling about 2,000 yards, 
seven touchdowns, and ten interceptions. Spent the following year in Kansas City, played sparingly, and ended up back in Philly. Not much playing time during uh, the regular season, but he led them to a Super Bowl victory and Super Bowl MVP honors in 2017, coming up short in the divisional round just last year. So all of Nick Foles' success came with Philadelphia, and he hasn't had that much regular season success, seeing as he was most often the number two quarterback on the depth chart. Now, he's the unquestioned starter in Jacksonville, and the question remains, are we going to see the Nick Foles who in 2013 he put up 27-2 to touchdown interception ratio, or are we going to see the St. Louis Rams version of Nick Foles? But I'll tell you why this is a win for Jacksonville, because Blake Bortles has cost this team the chance to win on so many different occasions that any kind of an upgrade over Bortles is a win. That's how bad he is. Whether you believe in Foles or not, he's a better option for the team than Blake Bortles ever was. That cannot be questioned. And as we saw two years ago when the Jaguars were minutes away from going to a Super Bowl, this is a team ready to win right now. And a lot like the Vikings entering last offseason, they were ready to win. They felt like they needed to go out and get their quarterback. And that's what the Vikings did last offseason, and that's what Jacksonville did this offseason. As bad as Jacksonville finished last, uh, last season going from first to worst, they still finished with a top five defense. This year, their defense is almost fully intact. They'll have Leonard Fournette back on 100%, and now they'll finally have a capable quarterback. All of the necessary ingredients to bring Jacksonville back to the top of a very stacked division. Now, it's hard to talk about a winner coming out of the AFC East that isn't the New England Patriots, but the New York Jets crossed the finish line of free agency's first wave as winners. And even if the Jets didn't land arguably the best running back in the NFL on Le'Veon Bell, I think the Jets still would have come out as victors. Hiring Greg Williams, who has a proven track record of tough defenses and a cheater with the Saints back in 09, he's bound to revamp the Jets' 26th-ranked defensive unit from a year ago. And although they couldn't quite land Anthony Barr at linebacker in free agency, they still managed to bring in talent such as C.J. Mosley, cornerback Brian Poole, and uh, Henry Anderson on the D-line. They also signed a proven wide receiver in Jamison Crowder to help bolster the offense surrounded by second-year quarterback Sam Darnold. Young quarterback, hard, tough-nosed defense, and the best running back in the league. That's a recipe for success. The Jets may not be in play to unseat the Patriots from their throne just yet, but they now have building blocks in, uh, in place. They got the third overall pick in this year's draft, and they've got a proven defensive guru and cheater on the sidelines. It's not hard to imagine the Jets as the team to beat in the AFC. Once Brady and Belichick retire, if ever. And the last winner of free agency, and probably the biggest winner of all, ladies and gentlemen, your Cleveland Browns. Let's give it up for the Cleveland Browns. The Browns have done everything right the last couple of years. Maybe not on the field, but behind the scenes and in the offseason, they built a team with some serious potential through the draft the right way. They finished 7-9 last year after going 0-16 in 2017, and now finally, for the first time ever, the Browns are a preferred landing spot for free agents, and this offseason has proved that. This is an offense that features a second-year running back in Nick Chubb, who took over the reins at the position and doesn't seem to be looking back, Rookie of the Year candidate Baker, uh, Baker Mayfield and Jarvis Landry, they also signed Kareem Hunt, who's a little bit troubled, but if he can get his act together, he's got all the potential in the world, as we saw when he was with Kansas City. 
We all know the Browns traded for Odell Beckham Jr., signed Sheldon Richardson, and traded for Olivier Vernon to bulk up the defensive line right next to -to soon-to-be All-Pro Miles Garrett, and they've added linebacker uh, Darius Taylor. They did deal safety Jabril Peppers to the Giants in the Odell Beckham Jr. trade, but my guess is they signed recently released safety Eric Berry to fill that void. Watch it happen. I've been making jokes with my friends all week that we need to just crown the Browns Super Bowl champions right now. But the truth is there are still a lot of questions. For one, egos and characters are all over that team. Baker Mayfield is no saint, although he's cleaned up his act since entering the NFL last year, as far as we know. Kareem Hunt is troubled. He's got eight games. It was just announced about 10 minutes ago. Kareem Hunt, uh, eight-game suspension for, um, what do they call that? Conduct, the conduct deal. Eight-game suspension for Kareem Hunt. That's all I know. And it's no secret that Odell Beckham Jr. is outspoken, and he is the definition of a wide receiver diva. It's going to be up to rookie head coach Freddie Kitchens to manage all of these personalities and bring them together as a, as a team while uniting a very talented offensive group and improving last year's 30th-ranked defense. A lot of people saying that this is the Browns' division to lose. Can't say that I 100% agree. Pittsburgh's still talented, even if they did lose two of the best players in the NFL this offseason. And you got the Baltimore Ravens, who always seem to have a top-of-the-line defense, no matter who they have starting on that side of the ball. Cincinnati's trash, they're nothing to worry about. But the Browns are a very young team, with only three players 29 years of age or older on the roster. They have enormous potential. But potential does not win Super Bowls or even divisions. All I'm saying right now is that the Browns absolutely won free agency by far. And the team, the franchise, the diehard uh, fan base, and I hate to say it, the entire city of Cleveland deserves it. And they finally have a football team to be excited about for the first time in well over 20 years. It's too early to be making 2019 season predictions anyways, and we still have the NFL draft to look forward to, which reminds me, next month... NFL Draft Nashville. I'll be there. I'm going to try to get one more episode out prior to the draft episode. I don't have all the details yet, but the plan is to go to Nashville for the NFL Draft and broadcast live prior to day one of the NFL Draft, which is Thursday, April 25th. Whether I can actually make that happen remains to be seen, but one way or the other, I will be putting out an NFL Draft episode live from Nashville or not, featuring a full-length 32-team first-round mock draft. This will be the most in-depth mock draft you'll find this side of Mel Kuyper Jr., including potential trades and whatever. I'm signing off right now because to me, free agency is over, and I have a month to prepare for the NFL Draft. 2019, Nashville, book it. Time to get to work. I'll see you next time.